Survives Wingfoot. Now the moment Aaron Badley has waited. Curry Webb is the five-time Australian Open champion. Golf at its best by one of the best in golf, Peter Thompson. Stand in front of a crowd like this today and win the PGA Championship is pretty special. He's done it at last. Greg Norman. Stonehaven Cup. Leash been to 11 under. And we've got a new leader, kids. Here it is. Adam Scott. A life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going inside the ropes. Subscribe now on iTunes or your favourite podcast app or head to golf.org.au. G'day everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Inside the Ropes, episode number... Number 61. 61. Episode number 61, Mark Hayes. How are you? Extraordinary. I'm really well, thanks, Andy. Uh, we are. Uh, out goes Blake. In comes Clayton. Mike Clayton, hello to you, Michael. Late, late call-up. Uh, yeah. A late call-up, was late it? Late call-up, yeah. I was in the Golf Victoria office with Joe Charlton yesterday when she got a call. So she said, can you do it? So I'm here. We're yeah. very happy to have you here. And yeah. There's a lot of things I want to how's talk the, to you how, specifically about tonight. How's the fashion compared to Blakey's? Yeah, no, he leaves him for dead. Mm. In fact, he leaves all of us for dead, to be honest. <laughs> Me, yeah. The only man who can still wear a skivvy. It's almost a skivvy. Don't or have you got a skivvy under the jumper, have you? No, it's just a t-shirt. Oh, Jack Nicholas, like you ever seen the Jack Nicholas picture in the British Open? Walter Eos took the picture. Great American photographer. Famous picture of Nicholas in the yellow cashmere. Yeah. I love that jumper. Polenic jumper. Yeah, love, Unbelievable. 970 at St Andrews. It's more, you're rocky, it's more a Gary Player look today. Yeah, than, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Nicholas, no one wore a polo like Jack Nicholas. Have you ever? Do you have a polo in your cupboard anywhere at home? As in, like a polo shirt or a polo what? Ralph Lauren? No, 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 no def- a polo neck jumper. No, I definitely do not. Great to travel with on the tour in Europe because it was always it was never hot enough to just play. An, often not hot enough to play in a shirt. Mm. So it saved ironing shirts. Just put a t-shirt on and wore the jumper, and so it saved lumping around shirts and washing shirts and. So we played in them a lot. No, I can I can imagine. I couldn't get them over the chins, Andy. These are issues that you have to deal with on your own in this room, Hazy. Thank you, Andrew. Um, now, there's a lot to talk about today. Mike Cocking's going to join us on the show. You've sat down. You've done a sit-down with Mike Cocking. Yeah, I had a chat with Which... Mike this morning. He's just um, working at Karen Up um, as one of Clayton's associates at um, Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking and Mead, um, the re- revered golf course architecture Increasingly firm. Increasingly so. So Clayton doesn't even have a clue what I spoke to him about, so he, he might have got a drive-by during the middle of it, and we can't say just at the minute. But, yeah, it was great. And Mike's – we'll explain later, but, you know, some, some great stuff that's going on at Victoria Golf Club. Yeah. I'm sure Clayton can give us an extra insight as well. Looking forward to that. And Karis Davison, who um, we've, we've been sort of sort of borderline stalking Karis <laughs> for have. the last six or seven weeks. So um, it was about time that we got her on. Yeah, this is part of my homework that I keep preaching I should go and do. And we fa- we finally tracked Karis down in deepest, darkest corners of Japan. So, so she's in Japan and we'll find out where she's at and how close she is to getting done what she needs to get done. Correct. And I'm pretty sure she'll be happy to hear some English speakers. Mm. Plus plates. Is she Scotland's highest ranking female golfer now? <laughs> Well, according to Huggy. According to John Huggin. Is he claiming her, is he? Oh, absolutely oh. claiming her. He claims Steve Allen and Michael Sim. And any, anyone who's born in Scotland, he's claiming them. Well, so she, was she born in – was Karis born in Scotland? Scotland? Yeah. She came here when she was, like, maybe not – we can oh, find out. But I think six or eight, 10, eight, eight or ten. Okay, so yeah. she's first generation. Yeah, well, I can she's understand why she's doing yeah. that. That's why she's – We actually got a, quite a few of those, Annie. Becky Kay's born in England. 
um, our number one mm-hmm. amateur right now. And um, there's a couple of, especially in Perth, there's a couple of, there's a series of young amateur boys who are uh, Scottish, of Scottish extraction or um, were born and have moved out. Um, Josh Greer and McKinney and mm. a couple others. And uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of um, Scotland well, South. We're, we're very happy to have them. Oh, we're wrapped. Flying our flag. They, they're happy to be here too, just quietly. Don't let anyone else tell you anything else. So we'll talk to Karis about how close she is to securing her card, and it's probably a reasonable jumping-off point, um, given the fact that we're um, approaching the ultimate crescendos on the two men's tours in America um, with various levels of interest from those of us who sit around this table. They're playing for a whole lot of money um, at East Lake, and there's four... I always get this. Is it four Australians teeing it up there? Three to go. Three. We Dave, lost Scotty. Smith and Leishman, of course. Yeah. yeah, we lost Scotty. But I, I think, argue if you will, but I've got far more interest in what's happening on the secondary tour over in America it's, at the moment. Uh, for so many reasons, because it's practical in their lives and the money's, you know, tangible, not the stupid amount of money that's going on at East Lake. So. Um, the big the big news this week will be can we get another couple of people at least one hopefully two or three mm. into the USPGA tour next year we've got two already locked on we've discussed that in previous episodes Cam Davis and Matt Jones um, I reckon Curtis Luck is about five cents away from uh, ensuring he's, he's got enough hasn't he we well, think? he's got what he has got is more money than the twenty fifth person you need to be in the top twenty five he's got more money than the twenty fifth person already in the so previous previous five years he's six yeah so nine 16. guys have to go yeah. past him so what would have to happen is people from seventeen basically through to about thirty four would all have to finish above him and substantially but there's or, always someone who's seventy fifth who wins or comes second and jumps the whole lot that no one's thinking so of. so every one of those players i think I, I, I'll stand to be corrected on the maths, on yep. the actual number, but every one of those players from 17 to 25 needs to make more than $9,500, there or thereabouts, more than Curtis does to knock him to down. jump over the top of him and force him out. So that's highly unlikely, you would have thought. Correct. Highly. And I mean, it's mathematically possible, but highly, highly unlikely. But he, he's not one, as we heard a couple of weeks ago when we spoke to him, to, to focus on that. He's just focused on winning the Tour Championship. So Aaron Baddeley's inside at the moment. Bads went up a couple of slots. Yep. So um, he's, I think, at 21 right now. Uh, he had a, a, a 22 he is right now, as we speak. Um, he's done it by – he's done it the hard way. He's been consistent the whole round. He's, he's, his scores have been consistent and his finishing positions have been consistent. Yep. But he needs another good result to make sure of his card back on the big tour. We could have him – the biggest – the hurt, hurtful one this weekend, he was actually – um, uh, from Sydney, it was Brett Druitt. Oh, he was, uh, he's flying the first couple of rounds. Yeah, he had a massive 63 second round, took the lead, and mm. you think, oh, he's going to he's gonna leapfrog from 68, I think he was, mm. all the way up. And he sat there at number two for a long time in the third round in the, you know, the as we speak, live rankings. And uh, all of a sudden, he has a stinking third and fourth, mm. or closure, closure to the third round. And then the fourth round was a bit of a flop for him. Uh, and he fell all the way back to basically 64th. So that's a big roller coaster in one week, and I'm not sure he's going to be able to bounce back. He, he, when things went south, he started pulling the ball left, and I don't think he was able to overcome that. So as well as the rest of his game was going, uh, he had some scars up there. So it's going to be tough. It's a tough place to find yourself as a pro, Clates, to um, have played yourself into a position where you are about to earn yourself a job on the you know in the minds of some the best place to yeah. work yeah. in the world and then you know Choke. 36 holes later it's gone yeah yeah it's tough
Golf's hard. Mm. Golf's really hard. There's we take golf, it for granted. Like Bobby Jones said, there's golf and there's tournament golf and they're not much relationship to each other, really. And there's some, I suppose, great news, Andy, from, from Europe as well with so many uh, Australians. Without sort of, you know, rattling the cage of the victory and in the Netherlands on the weekend, but putting their hand up, getting a few extra dollars and taking quite reasonable steps towards the top 110, ensuring their card for the next for next season. And Lucas Herbert was chief among those again. So he's moved back up to 103. And yep. I, I reckon he's almost in the Curtis Luck category. How many category. are there to go? There's still six tournaments to oh, go. Six to go. There's a lot of tournaments. There's a lot, things, lot to go yet. Things could happen, but again, it comes down to Matt and the people in the wrong spots for as far as he's concerned would be the ones who have to push him out. And I think you wrote somewhere, Clates, during the week, there's quite a few people who aren't really relevant. The to red the, dot guys. So it's hard to follow the Whilst dots. the top 110 is the number, I might be wrong, but there are, I think, five guys above him with red dots against their name, which guys like Pat Perez, who won't play enough tournaments. So he'll come off or he won't count. Cameron Smith's another example. So probably it mean they would go to 115 probably. So Lucas is a decent way inside that. So yeah. he's just got to keep getting starts. And he has a win this week, doesn't he? We're sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon recording this. I'm not sure when you're listening to it, but he'll be teeing it up in Portugal this week. So that's any time he gets a start at the moment, uh, the way he's going, he's finding a way of... M- Absolute baseline making cuts, yeah. and in, he's been sticking his nose in the frame often enough to make some money. Portugal yeah. won't be a great field the week before the Ryder Cup, and it won't be a because he's in the Dunhill, I think. But well, he's in the Dunhill, but yeah. that, that's a good field. I mean, mm. Rory plays there, and all those guys. That's a tough field, but I think he likes his chances in Portugal just quietly. Portugal's not a, not going to be. Well, I don't reckon Lucas Herbert would not fancy his chances anyway. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. So he's one of three. driver, he'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> When are we going to see that, by the way? You told us about it last week on the show. Yeah, no, there's been no um, discernible progress from Justin Falconer, Andy, so if you want to give him a bit of a no, drive-by no, he, here. you gave me a clip back last week. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm, when it comes to talking about blokes here, I'm standing on very thin ice. Oh, I wasn't going to say that. But Thank I'm, you. Uh, so in other Australians on the European tour, Adam Bland is 110, so he's right on Good. the cusp. Uh, and did, he did well, 46th last week. And Jason Scrivener was 15th, which is a great result, and he's up to 111. So there's quite a few sort of still hanging around. Brett Rumford at 139, uh, Sam Brazel at 156, Jordan Zunich at 163, and, and your man Marcus Fraser at 173, who can theoretically still do it. Yeah, he um, could. But we're going to need, me, we're gonna need a lot of wriggling. He's got some. I think. I think it'd be fair to suggest we should get him on one day and have a chat about it. But I think he's at that point of his life. You know, he's, the kids are at an age where you know they're starting to kind of become a bit older, and he'd like them to be a bit more settled, and he'd like to be you know settled with them. And he's got that thing going on in the head of a pro golfer that I imagine would be a difficult thing to justify to yourself, Clates. Do I continue to spend twenty five weeks a year away from home and miss yeah. out on watching my kids grow up. And everyone's fifty yards longer than him now and yeah. you, know, yep. you get to that point where what's the point of this? You know, it's so hard to compete when you've not that he's a short hitter. If we all went and played with him we'd be amazed at how far he hits the ball. But yeah. it's a short hitter relative to the guys he's playing against. And when you're forty forty one or two yeah, or it'd be that now, yep, yep. Uh, I, I really hope that he comes back because he, he was unable to play last year at the Hong Kong Open was his commitment. Yep. But this year, because of the date changes, I hope that he'll be able to play the Australian Open. And it's at the Lakes, which is great for him because, he, in his own words, he can't win at the Australian because of what Clay well, was just saying. So Yeah, I mean, we did the redesign at the Lakes, but there's, there's ze- almost zero advantage for long hitters at yep. the Lakes. And so a couple of holes, you get a bit of a break, but... It's a funny course how it... That's why Peter Senior could win there. 
when he won a few years ago that it's really you know, it doesn't matter how far you hit the ball it's all about where you place it and your second shot and for someone good enough to be an Olympian as he was for Australia in 2016 Marcus Fraser stands on the first tee at the Australian knowing he cannot win yeah and I, that, that sort of it shows you everything about where the game's gone in the last yeah. little while yeah. so um, hopefully we get to see him there and you know, where he goes for the next year I don't know yeah I think he's still got it in mind that he'll play a lot of golf but it might just be a bit closer to home and I'm gonna, um, which you know would yeah. be good I'm going to give you some breaking news, Andy, as we oh. record, but it won't be when everyone listens, obviously. But um, Brant Snedeker, speaking of the Australian Open, is confirmed. Terrific. Uh, and we can expect some other good news coming out of um, on the, in that department in the next couple of weeks, too. Right. Some, so I'll, I'm, I'm going to say to those who are listening about the Australian Open that it's not going to have your rock stars at the top, but it's going to have quite a wide base coming. We've got probably some reasonable news came through today. We've just got to confirm it. But watch this space. Good. So, in terms of you know elite level names being bandied about for major events in Australia, the World Cup, we now know that it's going to be Mark Leishman and Cam Smith who are going to be representing Australia. Are we disappointed that the best of the Americans can dish up? And I know there's a whole lot of other nations here, so so that's great. We shouldn't necessarily focus on the Americans, but they are a pretty significant draw card. Whenever they turn up at a team's event like this, the best they can dish up is their fifteenth and 18th ranked players' uh, official world golf rankings. So um, um, so we're going to be getting Kyle Stanley and Matt Kuchar. Matt Kuchar, yeah. We, who are terrific players, but it's not quite... It's not Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus or not, is it? Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods, no. No, no. You can read that one out, Andy. You can... So you've just thrown me your phone, and it's Bryson DeChambeau. Nothing means more than playing for my country. I could not be more honoured to be part of the Ryder Cup USA team. So clearly he hasn't heard of the World Cup of golf. <laughs> Bryson DeChambeau. What are they like, these blokes? So, so well, look, it is what it is. Martin Kimer's coming out, who hasn't played well the last year or so, but he's a terrific player. Yeah. There's going to be great um, players here. I don't want to run it down, but Thomas 15 Peters and 18 from that great, nation's pretty yeah, poor, it's, I reckon. It's but, if, yeah. it, if you could take the American... Like your only, the only thing with this is you look at the, say, a US PGA Championship field and you've got everyone, you know, everyone's there. The most we can have of the Americans, even if we got Spieth and Johnson or Thomas and Fowler or something like that, we can only have two, so yeah, we're going to be yeah. missing it. So that you, there are only two people in a 56-strong well, field. Well, i take either of those two balls that you've just mentioned. No, absolutely, yeah. and it's, I think it's incredibly and, and thing, disappointing. Oh, Dustin Johnson, there's some weddings and you know, Matt Kaminsky, too, you know, there's, there's been excuses or reasons why a couple of those guys aren't going yeah, to be here. They probably all got together in a room and said, Jordan, why don't you have your wedding the week of the World Cup so none of us have to go? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We've all got an excuse not to go. I mean, <laughs> well, who, ta- you're a bit more cynical than me, Clay. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure yeah. that didn't happen. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, what what well. this goes to prove is is what we sort of hinted at last week is that $8 million, the World Cup, isn't enough to move the needle. For- but I'll guarantee you if it was $20 million, it'd be Matt Kuchar and... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Cole Stanley. $30 million, Matt Kuchar and Cole Stanley. They don't want to come. They're not coming. They don't care. That's my point. It's no longer a money thing because we we sat here for years and said, if we could get the Australian Open to $6 million, everyone would come. Tiger would be here knocking down the door. Well, that's complete rubbish. So does it it devalue the World Cup of golf? Well, I think we're going to have to learn in Australia that we want to do things like the Vic Open that become great events, not relying on one or two players to dain us with their presence. 
the Open has modelled itself on Rory or Spieth or Adam or Jason. And as long as we've got those two or three players, everything's okay. But in the end, I think we've got to start creating great events. The World Cup's a great event. Of course it is. Lots of good players. I mean, it's, it's going to be one of the best fields ever to play in Australia. Yeah. There's a whole pile of really good players there. Yes. But just because the Americans don't bother to come, the Palmers and Nicholas's and Tiger and Phil and you know, just because just they don't want to come, that's fine. You, you, but it should be a great event because the format's interesting. Four balls and foursomes, it's on a great course. It's a bunch of good groups to watch. It's a really good event. So we focus on the quality of the event, not who's not there. Mm. And, and the Vic Open is the classic case of that, which has been had, in, in world terms, dud fields for four years. Hardly any good players, really. Menji and Kari and a couple of decent blokes, really. But, you know, just the locals. But it's a great event. Now, next year, it's going to have a better field. It'll be, it becomes a really good event to, without paying any appearance money. The economics of paying two guys $2 million and playing for 1.5, in the end, doesn't work. That's what I got, I got told the other day, Andy, $2 million for Dustin Johnson. But, so if you, want, yeah, to, but, if you but, want, we can get him down here any week of the year. It's but that's two, a fee that US. says, to me, that's a fee that says, I don't want to come, but if you're dumb enough to pay it, yeah, that's right. I'll come. That's it. You know, that's it. 100%. That's not, yeah, that's that's not it. I'm worth $2 million. No, 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 I don't no, want no. to go there. Charge them $2 million bucks. If they pay that, I'll come down. Yeah. That's why that fee is. It's a joke. Tiger was the only... Tiger, the problem was Tiger was worth three at Kingston Heath. Because, because he charged three, these other, Mickelson thought, well, if he's worth three, I'm worth two. Mm. Tiger had said, one million bucks is enough for a guy to play golf. We're not curing cancer here or winning wars or, mm. you know. So I reckon one million bucks is a fair fee for a week. Then Mickelson says, well, okay, if he thinks it's a million, then I'm worth 750 or 600. Then it's some sort of balance and the economics work. But Tiger says three, the next bike says two, and Ernie says 1.75. Then Sergio says, I'm worth 1.2. And wow. But the problem is that somebody paid Tiger Woods three million. So he was yeah, worth, where... yeah, absolutely. Well, but he was worth that. But, but that, that didn't mean Phil was worth two. No, Phil but, was still worth 750. Yeah, but once the horse is off the, off the line, well, absolutely. Then, yeah. then the, it's yeah. bolted by then, yeah. you know. And unfortunately, there would be places around the world who are prepared. Absolutely, clearly to pay this. There are plenty of, of places. Well, Dubai. Well, the Middle East pay that. Mm. But they'll, we, they'll pay we that. my point originally was we could get BHP or Qantas or any of the big Australian companies to say, right, it's going to be the you know, let's just say the BHP Australian Open. Well, unless they're giving us a you know basically a blank check, but at least a hundred million dollars, we're not going to see mm. thirty of the best fifty in the world here. We're mm. just not. Mm. Um, which is I, kind it's of really the, sad. But which the, is the Australian Open tennis budget, I assume. It's well, got to be hundred million on that tournament, easy, doesn't it? All up, but well, see, their prize money, their prize money is off the charts. Yeah, yeah, it's probably more than hundred million. So, but and it's a Grand Slam. That's the thing, yeah. that, and that's yeah. why when you talk about you know um, a floating global major, that's the one thing that will get people to travel. What's well, the disappointing thing about the PGA? Yeah. They can't see past getting outside of America once every four years and travelling with and actually making an event that people outside of America care about. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. So that, that would be my argument. I'm not sure if that's right, but that would be my argument. Um, we'll get the we'll get a break out of the way in a moment, but it would be wrong of us not in the first segment of the show to talk about a major golf championship that was played on the weekend. The Evian was played, and Angela Stanford. This is uh, this is a great thing about this is one of the things that separates this game from just about any other sport on mm. planet Earth. That you can do what a 40 year old woman did in stay competitive and win her first major, having been close, uh, you know, nearly 20 years ago to winning her first mm. major. She does it 20 years later, entering her 40s. I mean, 
this is a fantastic story that validates the possibility of of golf. It's great, fantastic yep. story. Yeah, she played well. I didn't see it. We were, oh, it was an extraordinary, it was a messy finish. What didn't Olsen double bogey the last hole? I yeah. think. And did Stanford double bogey seventeen or something? There was a she. Yeah. She eagled fifteen with a magnificent three wood into about ten feet. Then promptly, when she had the tournament sort of coming towards her, doubled sixteen. Then she birdied seventeen, sat on the lip on eighteen, but still had never led the tournament That's until until Olsen double bogeyed the last. And the way she played it, she she was rock solid for so long. And then just completely, I'm sorry, because I don't like using this word, but the C word, but yep. she choked up the last. Mm. I'm really sorry to say it, but she had a mare up the last, pulled a drive, couldn't get it back out in the fairway, left it well short, rammed the putt past, and incredibly handy, left a bogey putt to get in a playoff well short and low. It was hard to it was it was hard to watch. Uh, I felt really sorry yeah, for her because yeah. she's clearly a really nice person. Yeah, and she's you know she can play. Yeah, and we don't. You know, we don't know an awful lot about her, but she's a player and she's got a future. You just hope she can put this one behind her reasonably quickly. But, um, you know, the upside is even though Stanford didn't finish it the way she wanted, would have liked to have finished it, she was clearly battling a bit of her own um, in a... You know, battle, yeah. um, but she won it. She won it at 40 years of age in Se- her first major. It's a great story. 76 majors she took yeah, to get, get one. It's an ex- amazing. amazing. And it's Catherine Kirk, the top Aussie, yeah. tied 10. And Minji yep. Lee, threatened for a while, finished back, tied 16th. But um, Sue yeah. withdrew. What happened to Sue? She had migraines. No, Did she? she actually, right. She's actually home almost now. She's just, she had she Sue, was, oh, of course. Yeah, she, she was. Yeah, she had. She was awful. Has she had these before? Yeah. She had, yeah. Well, she had a car accident in America. About six weeks ago, got T-boned by a bloke going through a red light. And right. I'm not sure she's – she's actually played well, but she's not feeling that well at the moment. So, All right, let's get a break out of the way here on Inside the Rose. There's a heap more stuff to talk about. Mike Cocking's going to join us on the show and Karis Davidson as well. Hi, I'm Minji Lee, and I'm proud to be an ambassador for MyGolf, Australian Golf's national junior program. One of my favourite things about coming back to Australia is seeing all the kids getting into golf. My golf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about fun and friendship, learning golf and life skills in a safe and healthy environment. So, if your child is between 5 and 12 years old, be sure to find a program near you at mygolf.org.au. G'day guys, it's Ryan Russell here, and I'm a long way from home, playing on the Latin America Tour and living in the US, but I keep up with all my Australian golf policy inside the ropes. Welcome back to the show. Anybody who listens to Inside the Ropes routinely will know that um, there's a certain young lady who's playing a trade at the moment up in Japan who, fair to say, we, I reckon probably eight or nine weeks in a row we've mentioned the name Karis Davidson, <laughs> which, to be honest, would be a name not overly familiar um, to many uh, Australian golf fans, but I reckon it's a name that we're going to get more familiar with as the coming years roll by. No doubt. I mean, if you followed amateur golf, you would have seen her name definitely in the last couple of years. No doubt. Uh, and she's a you know Curry Webb scholarship winner and everything, but she came to the Vic Open at the start of the year, Andy, with, um, a, I guess, a newly minted professional card. And uh, since then... It's been the sky's the limit, and we're going to talk to Karis today right now, which she's joining us all the way from Japan, where she's been just going absolutely beautifully. Welcome along, Karis Davidson, to Inside the Ropes. Hello. <laughs> it's great to find, finally have you on the show, Karis. Um, Hazy has been um, telling your story on your behalf for quite some time on the show. This is your first, your first year as a pro. 
How have you? You're only 20 years of age, so you are a baby. It's all in front of you, and you're learning it on the fly. How have you found that transition from amateur to professional? Um, yeah, it's completely different because as an amateur, you usually have people doing everything for you, <laughs> um, organizing the trip and um, stuff like that. But as a pro, it's, it's you're all on your own, and especially being in a foreign country, it's been a lot harder. But I'm getting used to it now as the years gone by. And you, you thrust yourself into, straight into the middle of Japan on the back of your Q school results. You have to have a a, a translator, don't you, up there? You, you, I mean, you've, you're knee deep in this debts before you even started. You've got to pay for someone to hold your hand walking around the country. <laughs> well, um, it's actually not like that at the moment because I've just been getting caddies who can speak English and Japanese um, because they allow you to be able to do that, which has been quite helpful. Um, so it hasn't been too expensive so far, but um, you never know down the track I might need to do that. So, how is your Japanese coming? Just out of interest, because um, are we right in saying your 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 partner's at least part Japanese? <laughs> we actually broke up in um, January. So before I came yeah. to Japan, I was. I was um, single. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't realise that. Right. That's a bit awkward uh, for us, Hazy. You could have done no, your research. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one to pry into Karis' private life. Sorry about that, Karis. Sorry to hear that, Karis. He, um, he obviously hasn't been on my Instagram very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so how is it going? Like, are, you, are you finding the transition to Japanese life easier than you thought, or is it is it is it tough from a Westerner's perspective? Well, for the first few months, I really struggled, actually. Like, I was um, finding everything quite hard because the, although I've been sort of brought up um, being in the Korean Academy and stuff at, in the Gold Coast, it's very full on, the culture, like, everything's very different um, to Australia. So, But now I'm slowly getting used to it, and I've found ways to make things easier for myself, so... I'm a lot happier than what I was at the start of the year. Are these lessons you need to learn on your own, Karis? Is this just the jump into the deep end of the pool and see if you can swim kind of experience that you're you're undergoing? Yes, I would say that I've jumped in with to the deepest end of the swimming pool. <laughs> So let, let's go back. I mean, you uh, you won, the, as I mentioned, you won the Kari Webb Scholarship and, and, you know, things are sort of laid out for you there. Can you possibly tell us what's happened in your game that's different now, having had that exposure to firstly Kari and now the Japanese professional scene? Why has your game improved to the level it's clearly gone to? Because you've actually, would I, this is staggering to me in such a short space of time, you've gone past Kari Webb in the world rankings. Oh, well, I mean... I'd never compare myself to Kari Webb because I really look up to her. And, I mean, she's just changed um, golf for Australia forever. So, I mean, I don't really rate myself against Kari Webb because of the rankings. But, um, no, I've definitely – my game's definitely improved, I think. Um, Although I've been away, my physical – um, fitness and everything hasn't gone too far backwards, uh, which I'm really happy about. And um, I'm starting to get used to the greens over here because the grass is quite different. So 
yeah, I think that's why I've um, been getting a few good results recently. So uh, most of the courses you play, Karis, they have the two green system where you put on the bent grass in the summer and the core in the winter? Um, yeah, well, only at the start of the year we had a couple of, we've only had a couple of Cori greens this year, usually bent grass. Um, so the greens are usually really good, but um, the last few tournaments, they've been a bit slow because the weather's been crazy. There's been typhoons and um, then really hot weather, so the greens haven't had time to have a healthy growth. So, um, yeah, the weather's been insane over here this year. So, so as we sit here now, um, middle of you know September, where are you? Where are you at in terms of you know ranking there and securing a card? Whereabouts do we find you right now? Um, yeah, I think my ranking's looking pretty good. They had the last um, re-rank for the Q School um, for after last week's tournament. Um, so I'm sitting about in the 30s. Um, so I mean, I've got. I'm allowed to play all the rest of the tournaments for this season, and it's looking quite good for next year, but I just need to keep it up. What is the plan for next year and beyond? Do you see yourself being up there sort of medium term, or are you trying to get onto a different tour if you get the chance? No, I, I'd like to play in Japan for a few years for sure. Yeah, I, um, I'm actually really enjoying it, um, and I'd love to be able to learn how to speak Japanese fluently. I think that could open up opportunities in the future and um yeah so i i definitely would love to play here another few years well just hire a japanese speaking cat he's perfect he can teach you japanese or she (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well um yeah i'm trying to i'll try and find a more full-time caddy for next year um just being a bit difficult this year because obviously i'm new and don't really know many people and but I'm getting there, so. Well, I'm interested in you saying opportunities, Karis. When you say, you know, opportunities could present themselves to you if you stay there for a couple of years, what sort of opportunities are you talking about? Well, I mean, if I ever wanted to do something in business in the very late future, I'm talking about maybe 10 years later or something, and I could speak fluent Japanese, I mean, there's, um, the business over here, uh, they all thrive. I mean, it would be such a great opportunity or if I wanted to invest in properties or, you know, things like that. I mean, it's, um, or if I wanted to start doing golf sort of lessons online or, I don't know, just different things like that that I might want to do 10 years later. I feel like if I could speak Japanese, it would be a big um, benefit. I can I can see Karis on one of those big electronic billboards downtown uh, Tokyo, Andy. Uh, this is the this is the um I, I like I'm I, this is thing that's kind of a bit annoying about people like Karis Davidson. <laughs> like Karis, when I was twenty years of age, I didn't even know how to type my own shoelace. And here you are talking about investing in properties in Japan and maybe opening businesses by the time you're thirty in in Tokyo. I mean, this is next level. I mean, this is not next level from my experience of living a life. This is 
layers and layers away from the sort of stuff that I was thinking about as I exited my teen years. So I'm in awe of I'm in awe of you even contemplating the fact that these are potential possibilities that might kind of sit in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like thinking about it all. No, the no, time, no, but you know, yeah. Something to think about. Yeah. So, Karis, who's the who's the best player up there? Yeah, yeah. No, it might, none of it might <laughs> That's all right. We won't hold it against you. Don't worry. I was just saying, Karis, who's the best player up there? Because the only one I've seen play a little bit is Teresa Lou, who Tommy Watson carries for, who's a fantastic oh, player. Yeah. Yeah, she's a great player. I mean, I'd have to say... G.I. Shin? Favorite, well, the, I think that the best swing is... Um, her name's Narita. Yeah. Her last name's Misuzu. And she's just got a really awesome sort of swing and... Like, she brings a good environment to golf. Um, but, I mean, I there's so many great players that you can't really just point out one. Uh, and on that, like, on that that kind of note there, Karis, when we try and find out what's going on in, you know, golf in Japan, we, we clearly don't get to see it here in Australia. And, you know, kind of navigating your way through um, you know, the World Wide Web trying to find out information from a weekly basis can be a bit challenging. Um, we know how revered the yeah. female players are in Korea. Um, what's your sense for the way the local media has it, it embraces golf and, and particularly the women's game? Oh, they love it. I mean, you should see the fans. They Golf is like a religion in Japan. It's not just a game of golf. It's it's like their life. I've never seen anything like it. They, I mean, the media love it. They're always out, and um, I even got this thing last week where this guy wanted me to do a <laughs> an example of a bad putting stroke and a good putting stroke for one of those magazines where they show how not to do it and how to do it. It makes a nice change that you've got, you know, an environment and a media that embraces mm. um, women's sport. Uh, that's not always the case here in Australia, which, um, you know, yeah. can be challenging and frustrating and a bit disappointing from time to time. But, you know, in terms of learning lessons and and sort of getting exposure to playing, you know, what the game that you play in front of enthusiastic crowds, big numbers and, you know, a pretty hungry media, that's... Um, that that's a fantastic thing for you to experience on a weekly basis. Yeah, I mean, um, the women's tour is actually bigger than the men's tour over here. Way bigger. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, you find it hard to believe, don't you? Like, you hear that. I, I actually spoke a fair bit with Tammy Durden back when she was at the height of her game, and, and she was invited into Japanese television commercials based on her you know, success over there. And she wasn't you know at the top level, but she was one of the top five, ten players for a couple of years. And, you know, obviously quite uh, tall in in that sort of environment and blonde hair, and she was a bit of a rock star. Mm. Um, but the opportunities that were available to her as a what, – what is it, JLPGA? Is that what it is? JLPGA player as opposed to an ALPG player were quite stark. And, I, you know, it's something clearly we have to address in Australian mm. golf because if they're good enough to be doing it in Tokyo, they're good enough to be doing it in uh, in Adelaide or Japan – in uh, Brisbane, wherever. I guess yeah, you'd, sure. you'd, you'd agree with all of that, Karis. Hey, um, keep up the good work. You, you, it, I, I, I can only imagine there must be occasions when you're up there and you would feel like you're a long, long way away from home. Um, but let it be known that, um, you know, 
in a little place like this, this studio at least once a week. Um, <laughs> we're very aware of what you're doing up there and it doesn't go unnoticed. Keep up the good work and we really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Fantastic having Karis Davidson on the show. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be like. First year as a pro, 19 years of age turning pro and then taking yourself to Japan, which is a beautiful place and a great oh, yeah. country and, you know, by and large, beautiful people. But yeah. you're taking yourself into a pretty un- – she's born in Scotland. She lives on the Gold Coast. You're taking yourself into a fairly unfamiliar um, part of the world to – find your feet professionally immediately that's um it's a pretty big task she's given herself there yeah it's not easy travel i mean traveling there i think well i think traveling's easy yes trains are good and yeah the men's tour certainly they would pick your bags up on sunday night and take them to the next tournament so you don't have to worry about traveling with them and it's easy to get home too up and back no time change i'm not sure how often she comes home but i know matt griffin comes home a lot yeah mm. So it's not it's not a difficult place to play in terms of getting home. That that notion, um, you know, whether she's you know about the the magnitude and the stature of the women's game in Japan. We know how big it is in South Korea, mm. but um, that that's pretty. That that's kind of I, I find that hard. To, I actually find that hard to believe. I find I find it, so as somebody who's kind of invested in women's sport in Australia. Um, and you see the struggle they have to get a foothold in the mainstream mm. media and get their own you know, levels of financial support. Um, that's kind of mind-blowing that the game is that big. Well, the women's in tour in Korea, I think, is much bigger than the men's tour. Mm. I think they're, they're close to being the same, I think, in Japan, the men's and women's tour. You know, the, the Japanese men's tour hasn't really grown that much in prize money since 1990 when it was really flying when the Japanese economy was doing well and Jumbo was a big star and Roger McKay and Graham Marsh and those guys with Brian Jones were playing well, up there. It hasn't moved much from there, but it's still a pretty strong well, tour. Well, you have a broader worldview than me, Clates. Why is that the case? Are they more evolved than us? Are they, the gender divide that exists in nations like those, is it as great? I mean, I, I would have thought that they would have had the same battles with the patriarchy up there, females. Well, but the, um, the, Obviously, the Korean women are really good. Yeah. So this is a recent Japanese women are good. They play well. They, Kara said, golf's a big game, so they'll watch any golf. Mm. Um, yeah, and and they've got lots of good players. We don't have enough good players. Mm. You know, we haven't got any good players. We've got you know a handful, but you know, the, the Koreans have got forty or fifty or sixty really good players. Yeah, Japanese the same. So, so players like Gi Shin from Korea. Um, she plays Teresa Liu from Taiwan. You know, plays with one on the LPGA tour multiple times. Playing playing Japan because they like playing there. It's um the the crowds are probably bigger than in America. You know, Asians are well not that's not going. Oh, let me get this right. Um, you would like Sevi much prefer to play in Europe and play in Spain than in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand why they would much rather play at home oh, than play course. in America. Yeah, familiar yeah, and yeah. cuisine. You know, it's a much different yeah, place to play in. Yeah. You, know, you know, America, you've got to fit into America and eat that lousy food over there. Whereas in Japan, you're eating the best food in the world. Yeah. So it's a great place to play. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. Apologies to any Americans who might be listening to the podcast today. Of course. There's one thing that would never happen. The Japanese were never going to invent the Big Mac, were they? (laughs) (laughs) Never going to invent the Big Mac. (laughs) That is a very good point.
I've got to apologise. Yeah, I was going to ask before we wrap this segment up. Yeah, well, I knew you were going to gun me down at some stage, so I'm getting in first. But very sorry to the Davidson clan for my uh, inability to pry into her private life. But um, I neither know nor care what she does in her private life. I'm sorry for asking that question, Karis, if you're listening back to this. And um, but does show it. Well, no, that's just that's an excuse for me. It doesn't really show anything about this at all. But it is hard to follow the scores. Whereas you can make out what's happening on the men's tour, the women's side of on the internet is tough, and maybe that gives us an um, an underappreciation of how big it is over there because mm. we can't read it. Yeah, true. So it is actually physically a challenge to find her scores, and we are a bit light on for information as a rule on what she's physically doing on the course. So apologies for that as well, Karis. Not, Not at all. Um, Let's get a break out of the way. You've spoken already to Mike Cocking, uh, Hazy, so we need to have a listen to what he's got to say. And I suspect off the back of that, it might lead us into a couple of things that I'm very keen to t- talk to you two fellas about on the show before we wrap it up for another episode of Inside the Ropes. As I said, Mike Cocking to join us on the other side of this. Hi, this is Sherelle McMahon. Swing Fit is the fun, healthy, social way for women to get started in golf. You'll learn the basics of the golf swing and how to putt over a six-week program and get your whole body moving through yoga and Pilates-style exercises. You don't need any golf knowledge or equipment. Simply turn up in comfy clothing and get started. You'll be surrounded by like-minded people and receive constant support. So get outdoors, meet new friends and learn a sport that you can play for the rest of your life. To find a program near you, visit swingfit.com.au. Hey, Steph Ogilvy. I can't be in Australia very often, but I love keeping up with everything on Inside the Rope podcast. Good bunch of guys, and I love listening. Welcome back to the show. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the great courses around the world, particularly here in Melbourne, which we're pretty um, to have access to. Uh, one of those is Victoria, one of the most storied clubs in Australia, of course, and it's undergoing some pretty significant works at the moment, OCCM. Uh, one of the C's belongs to Clayton of the Mike Variety, who's just hitting a four-iron <laughs> on the desk here. Thankfully, he had better control than a nine-iron. Hopefully, he had, thankfully, he had better control of the club head when you were playing the game yeah. professionally. And then did old, just not then. so much the putter. It's an old Spalding nine-iron. One of the worst clubs I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Whose club is it? I don't know. Coming. Some bad clubs it's flying around this place. Golf club. Don't know who it is. It's um, up tomato plants. But on the, golf, <laughs> on the Golf Australia Twitter uh, account last, this week, you put out... A video which which highlights visually the work that's being done at Victoria. Yeah, because we spectacular. You know, we often hear Clates and others talk about the works mm. going on at different courses, and you don't often often see them. And um, Mike Cocking, who's one of Clates' partners, put out a video uh, for the club membership, mm. and I was asked by Victoria to circulate it just to give it a, a wider appreciation of what it is. And I was fascinated, Andy. Mm. I was absolutely fascinated by what he was doing. So I started our conversation with Mike by asking him just what it was that he was doing in that video. Certainly a, a significant uh, step for that club, some of the um, the last remaining original greens on the sandbelt. So, yeah, it's a, it's a significant uh, step forward, absolutely. So what happens in that instance? The club comes to you and says it's time to uh, modernise, it's time to, uh, I guess, repair the greens in some respects. What What's the conversation you guys have when you get into that situation? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think it's something that has been in the background there for a little while. Um, you know, in, in Melbourne, you know, on the sand belt there, for some time there's kind of been the big four clubs, you know, uh, Kingston, Heathrow, Melbourne, Metropolitan and Victoria. And Victoria were, were perhaps different to the other three in that they had a mixture of power and 
uh, bent grains, whereas the others have all sort of moved towards that uh, pure bent grass uh, strain. So, uh, you know, there's been times, I think, in the last decade, and unfortunately it's usually when uh, the bent grass greens are at their best that, um, you know, the, the surfaces at, at Victoria perhaps weren't uh, quite as good as their peers. So I, I think it's been something that's been discussed in the background for a little while and then, yeah, it just culminated, um, you know, in the last year or two where they felt that uh, they needed to make that change in order to, um, you know, to realise or, or, or to continue to improve. So, mate, when we see those videos, uh, I assume they were filmed by drones, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we do quite a bit. I mean, a really good way, I think, of um, communicating with the members. So we've We've probably been we've been doing it for a while. Uh, the videos. I mean, ever really when we started at uh, Bonnie Doon in 2010, uh, there was a guy there, Russ Kirchner, who who we use quite a bit now, um, and he he did a lot of videos and and all the rest of it. And he kind of exposed us to that world. And uh, then in more recent times, drones have, we've sort of used the drone footage um, in those as well. So yeah, we do we do quite a lot of videos, pretty much for every course where we're doing major work okay so, and what are we actually seeing the last video that you put out you know it, it actually showed oh well aside from you doing a little bit of raking and a bit of digging fossicking around the edges of bunkers <laughs> it, 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 it showed you know a lunar landscape in a lot of respects it's nothing like what we come to expect at a, at a beautiful green club like victoria no and look it's sort of i mean it's one of those strange things golf course construction um you know when members get back and see the nice green grass and what have you, they perhaps don't understand just the extent of works involved. And that's why we chose that time to do a bit of drone footage. So you can see the course at almost it's the maximum amount of disturbance. Um, you know, to give you a bit of background, you know, Victoria, there's in the green surrounds and the tees, there was sort of a mixture of grasses. So there was cooch, but there was also power and some fescue in there. And most clubs now, when they're moving towards pure bent greens, they're trying to eliminate power pretty much from the, the whole property. So it can't sort of track onto the greens. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just a case there of replacing the greens with bent grass. It was a case of removing all of these areas of where there was power in in, in, in the in the turf grass. So there was about seven hectares, uh, which is, wow. I guess, a, typically a par four, like a medium length par four, is one hectare. So you know, it's it's a significant amount of space. You know, it's seven par fours that were basically were stripped. All that was taken to. Um, taken to the tip site, and then, then of course it was the the case of of the greens, and and at the same time it's been an opportunity to do a little bit of extra work as well. You know, some new tees, some bunker work. It'll still be the same recognisable course. Will we see any discernible difference? It's a course that most people who've watched tournament golf in Australia are fairly familiar with. Yeah, look, it still will be. I mean, obviously the holes are still where they are, and I guess to give you a bit more of an insight into the into the greens, there's there's, there's 12 of the greens where we're basically purely being reinstated. So, which for, for us and, and for me is kind of a unique process. Normally when we're building greens, we're looking at opportunities to, you know, to make an improvement or yep. to, if something doesn't fit your eye, you, you know, you would change it. But there, you're kind of checking all that at the door. You know, it's not, it's, it's not about whether you think it could be this way or that way or you'd like to make a change. It's about reinstating it. So, you know, we went to a lot of trouble to have all the greens surveyed to a really high level. Um, we had some equipment made that could um, basically communicate with the survey equipment to, to replicate all the contours. So 
So on 12 of the holes, it was a case of really putting them back as they were. Within that, there's been an opportunity to add a few extra pin positions by extending the green. So mm -hmm. holes like nine, we've managed to... There was always sort of a curious ridge in front of that green where it yep. felt like the green used to extend. So we sort of extended it there and extended it on seven and, and a few other areas. Then there was three greens... 6, 11 and 13, which are really severely pitched and where, where we've sort of struggled over the years um, as the greens get fast to have pin positions. Yep. So those three are being changed. Just We're keeping all the internal contours, but just the pitch is changing. So the back of the green basically gets dropped by about mm. a foot. Okay. Um, and, and then there's three new greens. So 5, 12 and 17, which weren't originals and which we sort of collectively felt could be, you know, the course could be improved if they were a little closer to, to some of the best original greens. Well, I don't think any of us can wait to get back on there and have a look at it and see what it, how it all comes up. So what, when we see this lunar landscape as it is, how long until people are actually up and about playing on it again? Uh, we're looking at February. So um, we're doing some seeding this week. So the first eight greens will be seeded kind of late this week, early next week. And then we're seeding and, and turfing pretty much right through into November and then hoping, you know, all, all things being equal with the weather, we're hoping for an opening in early to mid-Feb. Mike, just out of curiosity, I mean, not every club is obviously very, very few clubs are fortunate to have the budget and the, you know, the, the resources and facilities that Victoria Golf Club has available to them. That goes without saying. People who are listening to this who, you know, can see that a little bit of work would be, uh, make would be beneficial to their their own club, whatever corner of Australia it is, but haven't got access to those facilities, nor to OCCM for that matter. What would you recommend just more broadly to, to for a little club to do um, if they were seeking improvements? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, design at the end of the day is cheap. You know, construction is expensive. So I think having a good plan, it doesn't have to be a detailed plan, even just a concept plan. Um, you know, you can call it what you will. Some people call them course reviews or master plans or whatever. But... Having some sort of having an architect review their course and and having a broad, you know, this, this is the way forward. You know, a ten, fifteen year plan. And once you've got that, I mean, there's a lot of improvements that can be made for in house. You know, they don't have to be expensive. You know, it might be just improving the mowing lines. Um, there might be some vegetation work. You know, it might be work to paths. Um, you know, subtle things, mowing the greens back out. Um, you know, quite often times greens shrink over the years and. You know, the, the strategy of holes so often is about tucking the, the pins in, in, in corners, you know, over a bunker or close to the edges. Um, you know, so, so you might find you can do lots of changes really r relatively cheaply. It's, it's not necessarily about rebuilding the greens and rebuilding the bunkers. Would you recommend against Muppets like me getting on the tools and actually dig, <laughs> digging and scraping and raking? <laughs> I don't know your digging and scraping skills. Um <laughs> But, yeah, look, if you've got, I mean, it doesn't all have to be done, you know, by a shaper or, you know, I mean, we work at we work at a lot of country courses as well, yeah. you know, who, I mean, we work at Yulong Golf Club down in Gippsland. Um, you know, there's one staff member there. So they rely heavily on volunteer help. Um, but, you know, you can still, as long as you've got some sort of guiding principles and some sort of long-term vision, you know, it's, it's, it's still um, possible to just continually chip away and make improvements. That's awesome. So what else you guys got on? I know Mike's been talking to us about, um, is it Shady Oaks in Texas? Yeah, Shady Oaks. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrific project. Uh, obviously, great uh, great history there. I mean, you feel feel very honoured to be working, you know, where 
you know, where Ben Hogan was a member. And um, so we start there in August next year. Um, at the moment, we're still finishing off at Peninsula Kingswood. Um, you know, it's, we're delighted with how that's turning out. I think, you know, we're quietly confident that that's going to, um, you know, really wow a few people few people um i'm just in perth at the moment actually we rebuilt the greens or resurfaced the greens and the bunkers um over the last sort of year and a half so they're all kind of growing in at the moment that's a karen up that's a karen up yep so um and they're sort of gearing up towards the super sixes again in uh february so it's in a really good place at the moment so it's going well uh we started over in the bellarine peninsula at lonsdale golf club um yeah, so we've got, you know, we're quite busy, really. And on top of that, you know, a few bits and pieces here and there. And, oh, and of course, China. We're in, uh, we just finished, Ashley and Jason, our kind of lead shaper, were doing really most of the work at um, in Shanghai. And they've got their opening, their grand opening in October. But then we, I was over with Ashley sort of over the past three months on and off and, and we pitched on a new project in Beijing. And we managed to win that, which is terrific. So it's a really interesting client. Um, nice site, and it's 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 a redo, but essentially it's it's forgetting everything that's there and starting afresh. So it's basically a new golf course. So golf so, is back on um, the on the books in China again. Look, it, there's some technicalities there. It's um <laughs> it's new new courses, no. So they basically the the courses that are legal. So the ones that were given um, that were approved by the government previously can be can be renovated. Okay. But for the time being, no new golf courses. So the fact that this was was a golf course and it was a legal golf course, um, yeah, we can go in and renovate it. But it's still, yeah, there's still some grey areas there. So we we often hear about you know Tom Doak or you know Gil Hartz or something rolling around the world and and doing all their works. Are we are we holding our own? Are we through you guys and others? Are we sort of you know punching above our weight as we do in most golf aspects? Yeah, I think we're doing well. Um, you know, I think. The sand belt is sort of held up in such high regard overseas, particularly in America. I think that's a unique point of difference to um, to Australian architects, particularly those lucky enough to work, you know, on and around the sand belt. Um, we, yeah, I, I think we're going, you know, well. I mean, a lot of the, the members of the, the Architects Association do work overseas um, through Asia and some in India. I mean, we, we've been very lucky. It's very hard not to crack uh, the American market. Um, we were... Yeah, really lucky, I think, to to get involved there. Um, and yeah, just personally, I mean, we seem to be talked about in that kind of group. Perhaps not not quite to to Tom and and Corn Crenshaw, but certainly we get considered with with them in in a lot of projects. So I'd like to think it's just a matter of time before you know a few more opportunities come our way. Now, before I throw back to the boys in the studio, you've got to give us one insight into the M. Clayton mind. Have you got a story that springs to mind that you can tell us that doesn't not going to get us kicked off the air? Uh, I just know all the famous ones. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Mike, Mike. In some ways, is the is the um, you know he's the, the the front man of what you guys do, and he's he's so vocal on social media and and has quite the reputation for you know speaking his mind on so many different matters. Is, is that a? Is, I, I assume, Mike, that that's a really you know positive thing for the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike's obviously very well known, um, as is Jeff. You know, so they, um, you know, I think people often, um, you know, th- think of Mike or Jeff when it comes to OCCM. They 
probably not aware of the other people behind the scenes or, or the other people that are, you know, doing a lot of the design work. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, as we've sort of, we've kind of transitioned over the years from, you know, years, 10 or 15 years ago, um, you know, it was a Michael Clayton golf design and that, that company finished up and we started the new one. So yeah, definitely it's been, um, it's been very helpful. And do we expect to see Jeff, not on the tools, but taking more of a, a role in the coming years? Uh, yeah, I think he will. I don't. I don't think necessarily when he moves back, it's going to. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he's all of a sudden going to be straight out onto the, you know, onto the first project <laughs> or anything. But um, yeah, I think it's kind of a transitional thing. I think he would. He's certainly very interested in it. Um, I mean, by his own admission, he's kind of new to it. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It does take a long time to really um, understand um, all the ins and outs of, of the industry. But yeah, he's he's very keen. Whenever he is involved you know, in a project, um, you know, he's, he's very passionate about it. So I, I think for sure, I think as he comes back and just settles into, you know, living back in Australia, he'll get more involved. Yeah. And when you, when you say that, I'm not just about Jeff, but I'm more interested about y- yourself there. Like he's, he hasn't done it per se. What's your, what's, what initials does your business card got on it? How did you get to where you are right now? What initials has it got on it? Well, okay. So I was, a keen golfer. Yeah. I studied engineering, so I finished an engineering degree, and then I got accepted into the VIS in the golf scholarship program. So I was there for about four or five years, and I kind of wore two hats. I was never that comfortable with the idea of playing professionally, but I, I did. I turned professional, but I always, I don't know, it just didn't sit well with me, really, yep. um, the idea of that lifestyle. Um, I had some good success, though, as an amateur. Um, finished well in a few tournaments. Then um, I was really passionate, though, about golf course design. I, I sort of stumbled across um, Tom's book, The Confidential Guide, when I was really when that first came out. And so whenever I went on a trip um, for competitive golf, I would um, kind of scour through the book. This was pre-internet, really, yeah. um, trying to find all these other golf courses nearby that were really good. So I played, you know, for, for Australia on a couple of trips mm-hmm. and so went and you know, tried to find three or four courses in the area and, you know, Pan Muir near, near uh, Carnoustie and things like that. Yep. Um, and then I kind of decided I had a bad tournament and thought, you know, I, I'm just not sure about this. Um, <laughs> I also had a couple of injuries and thought, well, I think I'd prefer to pursue um, golf course design. And I, I knew Mike through golf and reached out to him and then got introduced to the, the managing director of that company and, and some of the other partners that kind of started there really. And Ashley Mead, who's one of the partners and I basically started in that company at the same time back in sort of 99 or 2000. Um, and then, you know, I think over time, you know, with that company, it was just, was sort of, we went through a bit of a boom in Australia and, and I, we sort of kind of all challenged each other and kind of learnt from each other and, you know, learned from what others were doing. I mean, I, I certainly learnt a lot from working with Tom and some of his guys at uh, St Andrews Beach, and I know Ashley did at Barnburgle Dunes. Um, and then, yeah, and it, that company wound up in sort of 2009, 2010, and then the four of us started the, the new company. So each of us, you know, are directors. We've got, um, you know, we own a quarter of a company each. Yeah. We've got three or four staff as well. Um, yeah, so it's kind of built up slowly over the years. But you're not, you're not some um, sort yeah, of look, uber agronomist or anything like that. No, no, no. Um, no, I think, 
you know, it's probably helpful, I guess, to have a, a background in engineering. To, to be honest, it's more helpful to have to have seen so many great golf courses around yes. the world. Yep. I mean, it's, it's almost the best education, as, as long as you don't just blindly play them and take some photos and tick it off the bucket list. I mean, it's understanding, seeing these courses, even walking them and not playing them, understanding why they're so good mm. and, and having that power of recall. Cause it's amazing how often you're presented with a, a piece of ground and it reminds you of, you know, the fifth at wherever. Um, you know, golf course designers, I think, are unashamedly good mimics. You know, we're not, <laughs> we're not always trying to reinvent the wheel. We're thinking of the great holes around the world and, and you know, perhaps copying elements of it or, or quite a lot of it. Um, and typically, as you, you know, the way we work is out in the field. So as you start that construction process, it might evolve and change. But, you know, the genesis of an idea might have been, you know, some great hole that you saw, you know, many years ago. Yeah. All right, question without notice. And last one, your three favourite holes. Wow, my three favourite holes. Um, gosh. Or well, how about courses? Would three favourite courses be easier to, to I had three favourite courses so much easier. Okay. Um, that's a bit boring probably. But, uh, well, the old course for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, not just the history. You know, I think a lot of people, when people say the old course, well, particularly a lot of tour pros, if they're asked what they think about the old course, they say they gush about it. Yeah. Uh, when perhaps deep down they really don't like it. Um, but, you know, it's such an interesting fascinating place always changing you know with every, every day you know that crumpled landscape and how it's exposed to the wind and the size of the greens and you know with different pin positions it's just always always changing so it's a fascinating place i love it's it, i'm torn between something on the heathland and something out in uh, long island in new york um if i could have four i'd probably say uh Swinley Forest in London and maybe National Golf Links out there and then and then toward home well, I'm a member at Kingston Heath I love Kingston Heath but I, d- I admit that uh, Royal Melbourne West is our best course so I would say Royal Melbourne back here so reluctantly admit well there's a few for our bucket list for our listeners if you haven't already got yeah. them on I'm pretty sure that uh, the big the big boy at the top of your list there is probably on everyone's bucket list so uh... I d- yeah it is. Yeah, and I think to be honest, once you get you know the top twenty, you're kind of splitting hairs, really. Yeah, I mean, they're all they're all fantastic golf courses, and I think yeah, anyone should be lucky to have seen you know any of them. Yeah, so. very true. Well, Mike, we appreciate your time. I know you've got to jump on a plane there now, but um, yeah, we're we're fascinated with what you're doing at Victoria and, and all your work around the world. Keep it all up, and uh, thanks for joining us. Terrific, thanks, Mark. So there, there's a man who Mike Cocking and a terrific chat, a broad, unbelievably broad chat about a man who's he just doesn't. Like golf, this is not a, you know him. I mean, you, you mm. spend a lot of time with him. This is a guy who is is he kind of like obsessed with the game and no, golf? No, no, not like me, not no. as bad as me. But you've got a different. <laughs> and, he, and he doesn't play in the winter. He hates playing in the winter, so he doesn't play in the winter. So he's not obsessed with playing. He's got a couple of young kids, and he mm. but he loves the design part of it, and he's great at it. He's really good at it. we. I mean, we played together at Southern in a pros versus amateur match. And he wrote me a letter saying, I'd like to do some work in design and what do you think? And so I spoke to John Sloan, my partner at the time, and he said, yeah, I was, we were paying by the hour and telling him to come in. And it was 20 years ago. Okay, though. right, yeah. And he was yeah. still at university. Yeah. So he was doing environmental engineering at RMIT, which was what Katie, his wife, was doing. And 
you know, he finished fourth in the Australian Masters as an amateur when Monty, Colin Montgomery won in 2000, maybe. Yeah, right. And he played for a year a bit as a pro. He hurt his wrist. He, but I think you know, he, and he, he'd have been a good player, I think. But, so, he, but he, he found something he loved doing. He found something he was really good at. His wife had a really good job. It's like, do I really want to go and be a golf pro? Do I want to live in Melbourne? And I mean, there's lots of travel involved in golf course design, but do I want to do this instead? And, you know, I think he's one of the best guys in the world. I mean, Corin Crenshaw, Gil, you know, Gil, Gil, the big three guys are Doak, Gil Hansen, Bill Core. And there's a kind of core under those guys who are, you know, not as well known, but are young guys who are really good. And he's one of those guys. He's really, really talented so, at what he does. So, so tell me how you convince a membership that the golf you won't be able to put on your greens at a club like Victoria for you know six months if everything goes well. How do you how do you convince them that this has to be done? Well, we don't convince them. The captain and the committee tell them. Well, how do you convince the captain and the committee? That well, they have to no, convince no, no, the no that was that was their decision. They knew they had a problem. Well, they just wanted well, the no, greens well, to be better. No, the greens weren't that bad. They weren't truth, that bad. No. Never, no, the greens weren't that bad. And, you know, I think the pure distinction greens are going to be better, significantly better. But the old greens were pretty good. It wasn't like they were bad greens. And for us as a design company, as important as regrassing the greens, which was the primary consideration of the, the committee and the members, I think, was let's get some better surfaces on the putting greens, was a chance to really nail the design of that place. So the fifth green's not an original green, was not very good. The twelfth green was not an original green, wasn't very good. The seventeenth hole was had been a problem since they did put the dam in and moved the, the original green. So there were some big design questions that the project could fix, get on top of it, shut the golf course, let's nail these three holes that are far from being as good as they can be. And there were some beautiful old greens out there. But there are only, I think there are about 10 greens that are original. So we redid the first green. The third green is not original. Bruce Grant did the fifth green with his brother Graham in the, when he was the superintendent there. Um, the twelfth green was a Peter Thompson green. We've had a couple of goes at the fourteenth, and Thompson did Thompson and Woolridge and Perrot did the seventeenth green. So it's a bunch of so it's a chance to get back to a set of eighteen. Yeah, right. right. As opposed to greens that are. When Gil Hans came down, Gil had never seen. He'd never been to Melbourne. Never never been to Australia. So he checked him into his room at Victoria and we walked down the 10th, walked down the 11th and he got 100 yards off the 12th green. So he's seen two Soundbelt greens in his life. And he said, that green's not an original green, is it? Wow. And it wasn't that obvious, but there's a guy who'd never been to Australia who that's from 100 pretty, yards said, that's yeah. not an original green. So it's a chance to get the greens back into a, a set that it, where not one of them stands out as being different from any other one. And one of the things that Mike was saying there, Andy, is... is the, some of the greens that Clates mentioned, so I'm going to get these wrong, Clates, you're not going to help me, but is it the 13th with the big slope from the back? Well, well the, the, there are two greens with big tilts, so yeah. 6 and 11 and 13 to a lesser extent. Victoria was famous for its tilted greens, so the old 17th had a big tilt, which got changed 20 years ago. And they were fine when the greens were running at 8, which is what mm. they were designed for in 1930. But when you get them to 13 or 14, they're, they're too steep. Mm. So the question is, do you slow the greens down, which is a hard argument to sell, or do you tweak the slopes? So we're tweaking the slopes, but hopefully not that much. Because I think one of the great things about that sixth green was how steep it was. It was a, it's a beautiful green, and you could flatten it and make it like Honeydale's greens. 
and you can run it at 15, but it wouldn't be as interesting as mm. the green with the tilt in it. Mm. So, yeah, it was a penalty for hitting it past, like the sixth at Royal Melbourne, was that you're penalised for hitting it too far. You had to play under the hole. And if you hit to the side, you had the big sloping putts across the side. And, you know, it was no good saying, well, I, I was 20 foot past the hole and I, you know, I, I, I couldn't keep within 10 foot. Well, don't hit it there. Mm. Yeah. You, you, somebody may have heard you say on the way through their pure distinction, and unless you are a, like a real kind of golf course um, uber nerd, what's, uber the, nerd, what's yeah. the word? You, what's the word to describe grass? Grass technology, grass study, agronomy, agronomy. Unless yeah. you're a real kind of nerd agronomist, mm. you you may not know what pure distinction is. But I'm fortunate enough to be a member of a club that has pure distinction mm. greens down now. And so I have a slightly vested interest in knowing whether or not this grass from a putting surface grass is proving to be what some people suspect that it might prove to be. Well, it's just another form of bank grass. So there have been lots of – every two years it seems like there's the latest and greatest. Okay. So this might, this is the latest and greatest. And the evidence at Peninsula where you play is that it's going to be really good. It's much denser than the greens in terms of cover than the greens you hmm. see at – Kingston Heath and Metro, especially in the winter. So, so t- time will tell how, how how good a grass it is. I mean, early on, it looks like it's going to be a tremendous success. But let's see how it is in ten years. Yeah, that's going to be the thing, isn't it? But it plays. And the good thing is that you know it's firm. It's, and the way the greens are built, you, it's not hard to get them firm. So when they're firm, you don't need great. So I'm, I'm tending much more to the view that. We get greens way too fast. I think Royal Melbourne was ridiculous in the 70s and 80s. You know, 13 and 14 is craziness. It is a bit thrilling, though, Clay. Uh, it is a bit thrilling for... If you're, if you're, don't if you you're reckon, hey, watching not? it. Not, it's not so much if you're playing. And it's the biggest cause of slow play. And mm. I think if you can get greens hard, then running greens hard that are 10 is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Running greens hard that a 13 is just a recipe for a five-hour round. Yeah, that is probably true. And, and yeah. silliness. And, and we've seen lots of silliness at Royal Melbourne over the years. Yeah. When yeah. You, I, I played Royal Melbourne last week, the week before, and the greens were beautiful. You don't fix a pitch mark there that hard, but they were 10 or 11 and perfect. Hmm. So you eke out these other two feet, and it gets kind of, why do we really need this? Yeah, that's a fair point. So I, I think Melbourne's been obsessed with speed from the days of Crockford through the Grant Brothers, through John Sloan, through all the guys they trained. So, so it's 70 years of... You can't have them too hard and you can't have them too fast. And I think Peninsula and Victoria have got a chance to get them really hard but run them at sensible speed. And, and sensible, when you, when you look at they, the, the USGA tested greens in America in 1977. They acknowledged the stint meter existed, which it was invented in 1930. They finally acknowledged its existence 40 years later. They tested like 680 courses. And Oakmont were the fastest greens in America in 1977 at 9.8. Wow. Is that right? And we were running greens at Royal Melbourne in tournaments in 974. You know, the when Torino get a picture of me going out the gate because you won't ever see me coming back in here again. <laughs> you know, I were running at 14. I mean, we, you know, we were running greens that were four or five feet faster than any, anything in America. Yeah, right. When, but <clears throat> when um, guys and girls are putting – on greens that are that treacherous, Andy, and that, that they have to go and mark a three-foot putt because yeah, they're nervous about it. Yep. I mean, it just adds half an hour no, on every round. I think that's a really valid point. 
can you give, in case people want to see that video, um, what's the Twitter handle? Uh, I'll give it another tweak out on, on Inside the Ropes. I'll get our guys to put it Perfect. out. Um, right. So by the time you listen to this, it'll just search the Inside the Ropes, which is inside the underscore ropes. Yep. I'm really proud of, not that interview per se, but that this program allows us to delve off the, the main piece. Absolutely, golf. I agree. So I really hope that people enjoy listening to Mike because I think he's a great thinker about the game. So, so can I? There's one thing I'm glad you're on this week because, uh, again, this is personal, but I think there's something, but I think there's something to be taken more broadly away from this that uh, the golf club that I'm a member at it's gone through a merger, and we're not far away from seeing the gates closed on one of the mm. clubs that was part of the merger, that being Kingswood, which is you know, fantastic. Um, members club for a long time on the sand, on the outer reaches of the sand belt in Melbourne. There's been a big community kickback in recent times. People who live in the Dingley Village area saying, don't take my green space, protect it, stop the merger, keep the golf course. Clearly it's a private venture, so they don't, I'm not sure where they, what sort of leg they have to stand on. I don't really want to get into that debate so much, the legality of their uh, opposition to the closing of the golf course. But um, that, they, when you move into an area like that, there is no guarantee you're going to have that green space for the rest of your life, is there? I mean, th- th- that can never be a guarantee that a place like that is going to exist forever. Is that, is that a, a starting point that you can jump off from? Well, I grew up on the back of Eastern, which is now a housing estate. Mm. So no, clearly there's no guarantee that golf courses survive forever. And golf courses only survive if the locals support them. So I saw the piece on Current Affair the other night with the locals going crazy about what's happening but my the, the other side of the argument don't take out green space is that i played that golf course in 1972 in a, in a schoolboys tournament and i still remember the only hole i remember was a beautiful little par through the 13th hole which went down a fence line it was a nine iron shot maybe 100 well it wasn't a nine iron for when i was 13 but it's probably a forward but it was 130 or 40 yards hmm. and the neighbor well, there was one house there and i assume the neighbor tired of balls going in the back garden and complained about it. So Peter Thompson built a new par three, which was a good hole, moved it on a diagonal inland, yep, much longer hole, and it probably as good a hole as the one that it replaced. But it compromised the 14th, which was a, apparently, I don't remember, it was a really good hole, dog leg left. And 14 became a straight hole down that factory line, down, down to the, the, the road. That became a boundary problem. So they were forced to change the 14th. So they built the new 14th, which is an okay hole. But that meant they had to change 15. And 15 went from being a good hole to a not a very good par three. And they then had to, and they had to jam the 16th tee up against the fence to play away from the houses. Mm-hmm. And the yardage they lost at 15 meant they lengthened the 12th hole, which went from being, I thought, a good par five and it were not particular. sorry, a good long par four, you know, not particularly good par five. And then the, they had a problem on the third hole and they smashed a nut with a sledgehammer and basically rebuilt the hole of the front nut, reordered and rebuilt yeah, the hole of the front nut. Yeah, yeah. So by now, the, the neighbours have forced sort of eight or ten very significant changes on the golf course. And it went from being, in my estimation, a really second class in terms of yep. Royal Melbourne, Kingsley Metro, a step down, Woodlands, Spring Valley. Not even, no, Woodland, that's not fair to Woodlands, but, but a really good yep. sandbell golf course. It went from that to being the 15th best course within a 20-minute drive of Royal Melbourne in a time when fewer people are joining golf clubs and it's much more competitive. And why would you join Kingswood when you could join Woodlands or 
Huntingdale or Yarra Yarra or Commonwealth or Royal Melbourne or Kingswood or Metro or Peninsula or you can drive down to St Andrews Beach and, or yep. and the dunes. Are great. So why would you join Kingswood? So the upshot was that there were five or 600 members left. So the question was, was it viable as a club? And maybe it was viable for five or ten more years, but what was the future? Well, there was a club down the road with, that needed some money and if you rebuild it, it could be great. So that was the step they chose. But my, the other side of the argument was don't take our space was, well, you started it. Yeah. You know, if, if you hadn't complained about the boundaries and you put up with a few golf balls and you'd left the golf course alone, the Kingswood in 1972 would still be there because it was a tremendous golf course. But it was ruined by the forced changes made by no one who was a member to the golf course. Yeah. So be careful what you wish for would be my argument. It's a reasonable point, I reckon. And not wanting to enter the debate, you know, of people who have got their own access to grind, but um, it's. But this is going to be. This is because that that side of my my um, ability to know north, east, west, and south. But that part of the golf course where there was that beautiful par four down the hill that now is the par three that sits on the back of the ninth tee. That's the the whole yeah, comes front, into play. The front, the front nine was a terrific nine. Now it's a mess. That, that, that was all. That was all market garden over the road. And then houses got built there, and then ball that par four became a danger. The yeah, drive was yeah. people were cutting balls into, so the whole thing became. And over time, you could argue that the club made the mistake of either, and I'm not sure which is which is right, either selling land they owned, yep. or not buying land they could have bought yep. when they could have afforded it Spot to protect on. their boundaries. Yep. So it's a whole confluence of circumstances come together. In, in the end, though, the question is, it, it was it a viable golf club? And, and there's going to be more and more of it. Mm. As bad courses and mediocre, mediocre to awful golf courses struggle to survive in the most competitive suburban market, one of the most competitive suburban markets for memberships in the world. I mean, Melbourne's a great city for golf, and if you're a, you know, a, a third tier golf course, especially in that area, your future's not looking great. So the ones that are going to do well are the ones that Long Island merged with the National. The National, if rumours are true, that they're looking to take over a club close to the city. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, there's obviously potential in that. There's the Eastern thing, you sell up and you move. There's the Kingswood thing, you sell up and you merge. There's where we're doing the redoing Point Lonsdale, where you sell four holes and you buy some farmland next door and you rebuild the golf course and you reinvent yourself. But ultimately, I think for golf to survive and thrive, it's, it's all about great architecture. And there's a role for average golf, but the, the better the golf course you have, the better the bit of architecture you've got to sell to potential customers, the better you're going to do. Yeah. And, and the poorer the piece of dirt you've got and the poorer the holes you've got to play on, the, the more you're going to struggle. And Kingswood, Peter Sweeney at Kingswood, I think, was smart enough to see that. But it doesn't mean the locals are happy. Yeah. But, it, you know, no, what sound, do you do? The sounds of birds what chirping in the morning, hazy, is a good thing. People, if they've got that, they want to hang on to it. But... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how many people. It's amazing how many people who live on golf courses complain about some of the minor irritations of living. I'm sure, if there are balls flying yeah, through your kitchen every day, yeah, that's right. You, yeah. you know, but there are lots of people who complain about you know, maintenance from mowers at seven o'clock in the morning. I mean, spare me. <laughs> you know, complaining about that. You can't start your mowers till nine in the morning, or you have to rebuild your maintenance shed somewhere else where we can't hear it. I mean. You know, that's part of the deal of living on a golf course. Because your house, I'll guarantee your house is worth $100,000 more than it is if it's five minutes down the road, backing onto Chadson Shopping Centre or South Lane Shopping Centre. Or, Clades, you know. the 
the punters club got shut down because people moved into old factories that had been turned into apartments mm. in Fitzroy, mm. and they didn't like the they they grew up in that neck of the woods going to the punters club, but when they had a two year old kid. Uh, they didn't want the music coming from loud bands that played at the punters club anymore, so the punters club was shut down and became a pizza joint. So, things the pe- people are funny, hazy. They uh, they have strange notions sometimes, and you don't even know what the punters club is. No, absolutely. But, I, I went there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Having grown up on a golf course, I know what a privilege it is to live on a golf well, course. If you don't like a loud band, if you don't like a loud band, don't move in next yeah. to a pub. Yeah. And if you don't like a golf ball or a sound of a um, uh, lawnmower, don't move next to a go- don't move any next to a golf course. And having lived for a year under the flight path at Heathrow, you know, <laughs> are you going to move the airport? <laughs> no, you know, put up with it. Yeah, Deal that's with right. It. I've got a train line that runs down. Yeah, I laugh at people side. who complain about a you know a Greensmar in the morning when having lived you know with a mate of mine who had a place in queue un- under the flight path at Heathrow it was like. You ain't got nothing to complain about if you're bitching about a mower in the morning. Uh, there's a billion other things, but time's on the fly here. Uh, have we got some housekeeping that you need to whip your way through to keep those that need to be kept happy, happy? I do. Uh, and Andy, as we sit here in the middle of September, golf month is only two weeks away. Mm. So um, I urge everyone to get involved with, with, golf, with golf month this October. There are hundreds of activities happening at golf clubs and facilities all over the country throughout the month. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity, and this is the main thing we want to get across: is to share the game you love with the people you love. So it's you a know, lot of love. That's a lot of love. Yep. You know, the people listening to this are presumably rusted on golfers, and love is good. And love is good, and we need you to help spread the gospel, basically. So take someone you love out and play the game you love with them. So head to golfmonth.com.au to find an activity near you. And just a reminder to uh, to keep going on the Plane 9. We, it's an amazing opportunity to play not only oh, at the uh, Emirates Australian Open at the Lakes Golf Club, but also to represent Australia at Royal Port Rush in the Open next year. So golf.org.au slash play9. And I've got one shout-out to do, Andy. Please do. It's very odd, but a colleague of mine at Golf Australia, Adam Power, has sent me a text message. He's on secondment doing um, work with the European Tour Um this month at yep. the moment. And he texted me earlier on and said, just had one of the European tour guys asked me if I knew the Inside the Ropes podcast crew. They love it. Tell me it was Eddie Pepperell. I wish it was Eddie Pepperell, oh, but it's got a shout out to Simon Higginbottom from the European tour. So oh, thanks brilliant. for listening wherever you are around thanks, the world, Simon. Simon appreciate right. it. Last one. Um, we had Simon McDulski on the show last week, Clates. I'm talking about uh, the 10 significant rule changes yep. that we all need to know about. One of them was that we're going to be allowed to pat down um, spike marks on greens, and that's going to translate into the professional game. Are you? Um, the only good thing about that comments to make about the only that? good thing about that is that it'll stop pros slapping down imaginary spike marks when they miss three foot putts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think it's a who's the best? Who's the best? Has there been the best of all time who's never hit a bad putt? It's always a, an errant oh. player. Jordan Spieth's pretty good right you, now. Oh, there's there's yeah. a left-hander who's pretty good. Phil? No, no, no. no. Another one. There's one twice at Augusta. Oh, he's never hit a bad putt in his life. Oh, yeah. did you oh. see it? It went that way. It was oh, it's his, no, it's his caddy's fault. Yeah, it's always someone else's fault. <laughs> so, uh, I, don't, you know, I think putting, I think that we've been going along fine, putting the way we've been putting for a long time without having to tap down spike marks. No one wears spikes anymore for a start. Mm. But you can... You can Farm your line now. That's the worry, I reckon. We mentioned that last week, that blokes are going to half start dotting (laughs) a a path for a ball by, you know, that's the line and I'll just 
Make sure I've got targets to aim at. Yeah. The first year I played in Europe, we played that rule, actually, tapping down spike mice. They played it for a year or two and got rid of it. Do you know why? Well, the rumor I heard was that there were a bunch of guys using center shaft putters, and they'd kind of jab it on the line of their – had a short putt, and they'd stick it, create a little groove in front of the ball. Pretend they were pressing oh. something down, and a little, which was unimaginably – that's a pretty clever bit of cheating there. But yeah. Would you put it past some blokes? Uh yeah, I, you know, I, it would have amazed me if that had happened. But that was the reason I heard that they'd stopped it. But it was just the world went on fine with that. I mean, I think it's a bit. Dave Culbert put a tweet out this <laughs> week about <laughs> drop. Uh, it drives me insane. Dropping out of divots. I mean, just imagine the arguments Did, about what is a divot yeah, and what isn't. Oh, yeah. Didn't that tweet do your brisk trade? Oh, yeah, Freddie Couples at the best. I've we probably I've said it before here. I think, but players meeting in America. Greg Norman complained about. Sandfield divots and there was a bit of discussion back and forth and Freddie stood up and said Greg we've all got our names on our bag put it back in your stance and punch it out <laughs> and that was the end of that beautiful I love that uh, and he's one more player yes, in please. use before we yes, ship yes. up for the day um, we've mentioned him a couple of times and I will get him on in the next few weeks hopefully Brett Coletta oh, yeah. um, another T12 finish uh, in um, after a T5 the week before in Montreal on the McKenzie Tour in Canada. So starting to come back together for Brett Coletta. Um, he's, uh, where is he now? He's finished 22 on the order of merit and he's exempt in the second stage of web.com to a Q school. So Great. Uh, good on you, mate. Go well. And uh, you're really proud that, you know, he's taken another different path. Here, here, here. I ran into a bloke. You probably know Brett Stevens. Of course. Great man. The moose? Yeah, great man. At the St. Andrews Beach Brewery. Well, funny about that. Funny about that. Yep. He's been working with Tyler McCumber. Ah. Mark's son. Mark's son, who won the All-American Canada, won three tournaments in a this year, started working with him at the Vic Open this year. Getting his brain right. Took him out surfing at St. Andrew's Beach and played a bit of golf and caved for him at the Vic Open and he's won three tournaments this year. There you go. He's he's a bit of a gun, isn't he? Sounds like it. Oh, yeah, no. But he come. I know how you feel about mind coaches. Well, and he feels the same as me. Yeah, no. We had that discussion, absolutely. uh, He's got his head screwed on (laughs) the wrong way. We had the, I was thinking of sending someone down to see him. Well, I just back today. wish my wife had listened to him. He tried to convince us to buy a block of land with a little house on it that backed onto St. Andrew's Beach, and mm. she wouldn't listen mm. to him. Uh, so so they those tractor with, sheds, Andy. They're, hey? they're very noisy, the tractor oh, sheds. I'd put up with it. Oh, I'd put up with it, Sandy. Works with Luke List as well. Who, yeah, right. Uh, oh, no, he's been all He's worked yeah, with some yeah, pretty yeah, significant Pete, Obviously, Pete Sampras for a long time. Yeah, though. no, yeah, no. But, he's a good footballer. Yeah. Good, so, proud Tasmanian. It was interesting talking about the work he'd done with Tyler McCumber. Works with a good friend of ours. Um, <laughs> oh, what's his name? Plays over in America. Great fella. Speak to him on Twitter all the time. Aaron Price. Aaron Pricey. Jesus. Well, he's worked with Pricey in the past. So, right. yeah, there you go. Um, no, he's a good bloke. Yeah, he's sat, yeah, we, had, we had a good talk. He was interesting, really yeah, interesting. Good man. Um, so on that note, we're done. <laughs> good to see you again. You too, Murray. Thanks, uh, Clates. Always Thanks, interesting. Mate. Thanks, Clates. Good Very on good. you. Mike Clayton joining us as he always does, often. On Inside the Ropes, that's episode number 61, done and dusted. Thanks for tuning in, folks. See you next week.